And what I mean by that is this. Typically, those lists are, give us little more than just a deluge of more information and very little reflection and wisdom. And we would do better to, to have a bit more wisdom than just raw, uh, naked information. Um, perhaps what might be appropriate as we look back upon that year is, is not so much just, oh, let's just have a, another set of lists, but maybe do an audit. And I don't mean a financial audit. I mean a spiritual, relational audit. Uh, going back and examining some things and asking ourselves maybe some hard questions, uh, asking ourselves things regarding our, our decisions and, and actions that we took over the last 12 months and the choices that we made and uh, the impact that that had, maybe especially on people around us. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you have to ask, as painful as that can be when it comes to a personal, spiritual, relational audit. Now, for every one of us, to the degree that we are honest and transparent before the Lord in doing such an audit, in delving into those painful questions and answers, you find yourself, uh, well, filled with regret, right? Which then raises questions of, you know, if, if you keep connecting the dots here, asking questions and wrestling with the issues of forgiveness. In particular, where I've blown it, can I be forgiven? Most especially before the Lord, where I've blown it, can I be forgiven? The good news is yes. We have blown it, let's just be honest, and we can be forgiven. And that's really good news. You've got a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, we are getting back into, those of you who were back uh, in November would have been the last time we were in this series, through the songs, the Song of Ascents, Songs of Ascents. Uh, this is a, a section within the Psalter, Psalm 120 to 134. Uh, it's a collection of psalms that was gathered together at some point in um, Jewish Old Testament history where the Jewish people, as they were making pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, up to the temple for the annual feast, the Lord in His grace gave them these songs to sing uh, together, aloud, uh, corporately, uh, reflecting upon the journey. But this was not just a journey physically, geographically from the north, south, east, and west, making their way to temple and Jerusalem, but there was something of the spiritual journey, the journey of the pilgrim, the journey of the follower of the living God. And so in that, we can all learn something there, maybe e even if you've never been to Jerusalem or never will be uh, in this life. We need to learn to sing the songs of ascents. So, uh, if you've, again, if you've got your Bible, follow along with me silently as we read from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, 
O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would You please speak to us? Speak these words to us, these words, Your words, Psalm 130, not just, not just in sound waves, moving into our ear canals, uh, but into our hearts. Would you please speak these words? Would you free us from the tyranny of the lies that would say either on the one hand we have no sin to confess, or the tyranny of the lie on the other hand that says my sin is too great to be forgiven? Oh, Jesus. You have come to set the captives free, and you've made it very clear in your word that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the word is not in us. And part of that word drives us to confession, and part of that word also equally drives us to assurance, and we would have both. We plead with you now. Speak to us now. Amen. Let's talk about guilt and shame for a moment. The two basic camps that most people in the world fall into when it comes to a conversation on the matters of guilt and shame. So, in two camps. Here's the, for the first camp, okay? What I'm going to call the postmodern relativist camp. This camp explicitly denies the reality of guilt and shame because they would say, any man or woman over in this camp would say, well, there are no ultimate standards. There's no sense of objective morality to violate. Therefore, what do I have to feel guilty or be ashamed about? You see? That would be the relativist perspective, and many of our contemporaries are certainly there, okay, in regarding guilt and shame. Here's the other camp. Not the relativist perspective, but I'll call it the religious perspective. It's, I did not say the Christian perspective. I said the religious perspective. And the religious perspective on guilt and shame does not explicitly deny those things, but it functionally denies them. Because you see, from the religious perspective, there's too much at stake. Uh, the, the, the stakes are far, far too high. My standing before God in this, this view, my standing before God is dependent upon my merits, depending on how well I'm doing. So I can't afford to go there. I can't think about failing. I can't think about falling short. I can't deal with the concept of guilt and shame. So it may not explicitly deny these things, but functionally it will and suppress it. Now, the Christian perspective says both are wrong. Both the relativist perspective and the religious perspective are equally wrong. It's not that one is better than the other. They're just both wrong. And actually shows us, the Scriptures show us time and again, that in fact, guilt 
Our feelings, that when we feel bad about something we've done, that's real quite often. Guilt is real. And our feelings of shame, shame, feeling bad about what I am, is real. Both are real. Neither are to be denied. And we know this. We know this deep down, however much we might want to pretend and suppress it. Some of you may have heard this, the story of Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And the, the story of Arthur Conan Doyle is told, it goes something like this, that, that Doyle was bored at a particular time in his life, and so he decided to have a bit of fun with some of his more respectable friends, and so he sent a letter to six or so of them, just, just two lines, and they were this, all is discovered, flee at once. Two to three of them immediately left the country. One was never heard from again. Now think about what's going on. I know it's funny. I laugh when I... But think about the terrifying realities of the heart that are being revealed in that, right? We know guilt and shame are real. We can deny it, we can suppress it, we can pretend it's not there, whether from the relativist camp or the religious camp, but we can't get away from it. It is there, it is a reality. And here's the beauty, Psalm 130 shows us there's a way out. There's a way out. God has provided the cure for our guilt and shame, and it is His forgiveness. It is His forgiveness. He has provided the cure, the one cure, the one hope we have for our guilt and our shame, and it is His forgiveness. Psalm 130 makes this abundantly clear, beautifully clear. This is gospel right here in the Songs of Ascent. Three things that this psalm shows us about this forgiveness that God has provided. First, our real need. Secondly, the soul means. And thirdly, the only right response. Okay, so those three things regarding the Lord's forgiveness, our real need, the sole means, and the only right response. All right, let's look at these things in turn. First, the real need. The key here is, in the first lines, the depths, the depths from which the psalmist cries, okay? Now, he's clearly in distress. He's clearly in, in distress. Using the, the language of the depths, this is the language of the, the ocean depths is what he's referring to here. Okay, in, in, in a Semitic Hebrew understanding and the imagery used there, this is a place of chaos. This is a place of danger. He's feeling desperate. He's drowning. That's the imagery. He is drowning, sinking beneath the waves, crying from the depths. He's overwhelmed. You see this, you get the feel of this in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The man is in great distress, but this is not just, and it's so sad when I come across commentators who want to treat Psalm 130 as just, oh, here's how you Pray to, Jesus, pray to God when you're in distress. But there's a specific kind of distress. There's something specific that's causing, that's driving his cry here, and it is his sin. And his sense of owning 
his sin. And you see this in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The man is undone with a conviction of his iniquities, his sin, the violation. In some way, we're not told how, of the Lord's commands and statutes and ways. And he is overwhelmed by this, feels it, owns it, and recognizes that his sin is on a collision course with God's holiness. Okay? Because before this God, before this just judge whose justice is holy and is the ultimate justice and cannot simply just pretend like it didn't happen, he cannot stand. This defendant has no defense in this courtroom and neither do any of us on our own. Standing alone, none of us has a defense to make in this courtroom. And this is what we need to face. The Lord is due our love and service. He has been denied that. We have denied Him what He is due. His love and trust and service and obedience and worship and adoration and affection and everything. This is what He is due This is what we have denied him. We have no defense. Who can stand? This is what we have to own. And until we're ready to own that and can cry the way he does in some way, shape, or form in verses 1 through 3, well, that's the start of forgiveness. That's where it begins is in owning it. And we aren't ready to move to to the next stage until we've gotten and really sunk our roots there. We need to face this. We need to resist the pull to deny it. We need to resist the temptations towards distraction and, oh, my goodness. I mean, there have been temptations to distraction since the fall, but we're just more adept at it today. We have more options I don't want to deal with my stuff, so I'm going to get on social media and just camp out there. Or I'm going to check out my news feed for the next hour. Or I'm going to immerse myself in vacations and hobbies and sports. Or just a little more sleep, just a little more sex, just a little more more drink, just a little few more pills. Anything. Anything to keep me from having to face this. Anything to distract myself from what I need to see and know and confess. Anything. That's where it begins. Forgiveness begins with this cry. With this cry and owning what we've done. The Lord has provided this cure for our guilt and our shame, and it comes through forgiveness, and this is where it begins. That takes us to the next point. And that has to do with the soul means. How does it come? Okay? How does it come? And the key word here is, moving from the cry from the depths, but the key word here is His mercy. His mercy. 
And it comes, this mercy expresses itself in two ways in this psalm. First, in his forgiveness, and then also in his redemption. And those two things are inextricably tied together. So, in his, his forgiveness, you see it there expressed in verses 1 to 4. I know we've already read verses 1 to 3. We're going to go back and push a little further. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is speaking here of a debt that has been incurred. Jesus uses this this imagery in His parables time and again. We see this in the Gospels. The idea that sin and iniquity has has something of of the the idea behind it of a debt that has been incurred. I've alluded to this already, that that the Lord is owed our love, our trust, our service, our obedience, our adoration. This is what He is due. He has been denied that, so a debt has been incurred, okay? Forgiveness therein... This is one of the images that you see in the Scriptures. Forgiveness therein is not just the debt incurred, but the debt absorbed. Okay? So that then it is, in that sense, the debt is forgiven. Sometimes you even hear that language used today, right? It it has been written off. It has been fully dealt with. The debt has been canceled. But here's the thing. For that debt to be canceled, it's still, understand this, it's still costly. It comes at, to cancel that debt comes at tremendous expense to the one who cancels it, to the king, to the one who has written it off, that the books would be balanced. It comes at great cost, at great expense to him, which then takes us to the, to the next thing, the way that this mercy expresses itself as we see here in the psalm. Yes, in his forgiveness. But how does that forgiveness come? Through his redemption. Through his redemption. And you see this alluded to in verses, well, not alluded to, spoken directly of there in verses 7 to 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So this idea of redemption, just think of it this way, a ransom has been paid that the prisoner, that the slave could go free. That's what redemption entails, a price paid by a Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer Himself. That's what's being spoken of. It's who's being spoken of here in Psalm 130. I love the way some of the older translations put this. They speak of a, in the translation there in in the second part of verse 7, a plenteous redemption. A plenteous redemption. And that's what we have because of, of Jesus. But even still, where does that come from? Why? What would drive the Lord to set such prisoners and slaves such as us free? A steadfast love, a steadfast love that is spoken of there also in in verse 7. His heart for His own, for His dear ones, for you and I. That's what 
drives him. That's what impels him to redeem that we would be forgiven. And that's why the psalmist then says, put your hope in him. Put your hope in him, the source that we have, the one source that we have of this plenteous redemption. You see, forgiveness is possible. But only through this sole means, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's mercy. The invitation is real. It's as real as our sin, yours and mine. It's as real as that, okay? But it does not come by our working harder, thinking smarter, Laboring, striving more and more. It simply does not come that way. It's like what the old dude at the gas station tells you on that crazy road trip when you're trying to figure out how to get from here to there, and he says, sorry, friend, you can't get there from here. You can't get there by your works, by your labors, by your striving, by your anything. This forgiveness comes by His mercy. And that's the sole means that we have. The sole means that we have. God has provided. God has provided this cure for our guilt and our shame. And it is His forgiveness. Well, then that takes us to the third point. Because if we're grappling with this and coming to embrace this and understand this, we've got to know something about how to respond to it. What would it look like? What would a forgiven person look like? The psalm tells us. It tells us very well. It tells us, and it may be a little puzzling at first, it tells us that the mark of a forgiven person The mark of the person who knows the forgiveness of God, their life is typified by the fear of God. You think, what, what, what? Forgiveness and fear? Okay, look with me. I'm not making this up. Verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, do you see it? That you may be feared. And the psalmist goes on from there to explain what that looks like. Now, understand that the fear of the Lord, time and again, the fear of the Lord is not meant as a reference to terror. It's referring to honor. It's referring to reverence, respect, adoration, trust. Think of it this way. There needs to be, well, there there is, there is for every one of us something that carries the greatest weight in our lives. Okay? And whatever that is, in biblical parlance, that's what you fear. There's something in your life and my life that needs to be central that we need to fear, around which everything orbits. And the Scriptures time and again show us, in in this language, it's the fear of the Lord. He needs to be the weight. He needs to be the gravitational center of all that we are in the way that we live. Now, the psalm goes on to show us what it looks like practically 
for such fear of the Lord to manifest itself. And the first thing is a looking to God, a looking to God in all that we are. And you see this in this be- these beautiful words in verses 5 through 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. What do watchmen do? They wait patiently up on that wall, waiting for that new day to come. They wait patiently. They wait with yearning. Oh, that the darkness would come to an end and the sun would shine. They wait with patience. They wait with, with expectancy, with assurance that that very day will come as well. So there's a looking to God. A, 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 it's, it's the same sort of idea that Jesus speaks of in, in John 15 when He speaks of the, the need for the branch to abide, to find its life in the vine. Okay, In this looking to God, this is a mark of what it looks like to fear the Lord, to look to Him. But there's something else here, not just a looking to God, but a speaking of God. And you see that, I know we've already read verses 7 and 8, but it's important to understand the way in which He speaks, the way that He does in verses 7 and 8. Verses 1 to 6, the psalmist is speaking to the Lord, right? You can see that. It's, it's basically a prayer. But what happens in verses 7 to 8 is, it's like his, his focus shifts from vertical to horizontal, or because of what's happening vertically, his attention then focuses horizontally. This invitation, this call, this cry to his fellow worshipers, his fellow Israelites, his fellow God-fearers, out of his experience of abiding in the Lord, of looking to the Lord, he then cries out, oh, my people, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, my family, oh, would you, that you would know this, that you would see this, that you would taste of this, that this would be something in your life as, as well, so rich and real as it in his. It's an overflow. That which has captured something of his heart cannot be contained, and it just overflows in his speech and his call and his words to the people around him. This looking to God, this speaking of God, this is how the fear of God flows from forgiveness from God. It's how it's lived out. It's how it shows itself. You see, there's a real relational dynamic that you can see here in the psalm, right? The psalmist is reflecting upon the mercy of God. He's responding to that mercy, showing us that Christianity is anything but a primitive religion whereby we try and perform certain duties and rights and functions, whether in a place like this or throughout our days, and then think by doing those things, we've obligated our God to give us what we want and treat us the way we think we now deserve. That's the way most people think. That's the way most people approach God. And sadly, it's the way often we do too. And it comes out in some of our bitterest disappointments in life. Christianity is not a primitive religion. It has a profound relational dynamic to it. It is, it is not primitive. It is personal. 
engaging with the living God in His mercy and responding to that. He has provided, oh friends, He has provided for our guilt and our shame, and that comes through His forgiveness. Let me end with this. No few commentators have noted that Psalm 130 in many ways is the story of a climb. You start in the depths, right? And then this rope, if you will, is thrown, and then this climb begins. And you can almost chart Psalm 130 that way with the story of a climb. Or maybe another way to put it is it's a story of a rescue. You know, not unlike some of our more enduring Christmas movies, okay? No doubt some of you probably watched a, a, a few. Uh, and by when I say enduring, I don't refer to the ones on the Hallmark Channel. Um, I'm talking about the ones that actually stand the test of time. So case in point, um, it's a wonderful life, right? Where the people of Bedford Falls rally to save poor old George Bailey at the very end when he's at the end of his rope, right? Or even, dare I say, even Home Alone, where old man uh, Marley rescues young Kevin just at the last moment, just when the wet bandits have got their hands on him. Or dare I even say, go further, die hard. Yeah, I, I got that. Um, John McClane, right, and his heroic attempts to rescue the hostages from these terrorists there in this building there in Los Angeles. What makes these stories work? There's actually a common thread between all, all three and so many of the other ones that actually endure the test of time. It, it, it's something like this. There's this great need and a dire situation and a rescue that comes from the outside. Right? You see? That's the common thread. Well, there's stories of a climb. Psalm 130 is a story of a climb. Uh, of course, that climb only works because of who's holding the other end of the rope. Right? It's a story of rescue, Psalm 130. The Lord has provided. He's provided His cure for our guilt and our shame, and it is through His forgiveness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are forced to reckon again with Your words to us through the Apostle John when he wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, again, as we started, we ask that You would free us from the tyranny of the lies that would have us to believe that we have no sin or that we have no hope. We ask that you'd help us to be honest and teachable. We ask that you would save us from our pride and our presumption, our unwillingness to consider our need and your supply. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Our Redeemer lives. And so too can we. 
Amen.